man on his own chase of some kids who were dropping bricks and stuff in his flat window. She had a way with people like this. He got us and we moved on. Give me a choice, played one morning. The song was English Ski. weekly podcast where we will be examining texts, theoretical, philosophical, and literary, texts that have been formative to my own understanding of social class. Such works provide language and concepts for us to begin to think about the place of the working class and the ways we can survive and perhaps even resist assimilation. The readings we'll be discussing are listed on the homepage for the podcast, so if you like, you can read along podcast will air every two weeks, beginning with today's episode, for 10 episodes. Over the course of the podcast, we will discuss the work of Mark Fisher, Walter Benjamin, Jean Genet, Clarice Lispector, among others. The idea for this podcast came about as a result of my book, The Melancholy of Class, out this month by Repeater Books. In the book, I examine what it means to be working class in a middle class world. To be working class is to be a ghost excluded, marginalized, and subjected to violence, the working class subject has been erased from social discourse as a result of social class having been removed from discourse. We are left then with the choice either to assimilate into middle class culture, which is to say to abandon our communities, our histories, ourselves, or total annihilation. In the book I examine this theme while looking at the lives and work of working-class musicians, writers, and filmmakers, including Ian Curtis, Barbara Loden, Jason Molina, Clarice Lispector, and others. This podcast, then, is a natural outcome of the work I did for the book. In this podcast, I'll be introducing and discussing a number of texts that have been formative for me, texts that help me and continue to help me better understand my own experience as a working-class writer Works that provided language and concepts for me to better understand and articulate my experience as a working class subject in the United States. Among these works, there are also texts that provided a mirror for me, examples of lives and experiences I saw myself in. These experiences of identification broke the phenomena of invisibility I had felt my entire adult life and fostered for me a sense of community. We will begin by moving from the beginning, beginning this week with Mark Fisher's Ghosts of My Life, and moving along uh, along a timeline of my discoveries. The last weeks will discuss the works I've most recently come in contact with. I had initially imagined a true reading group or book club where you all could join me live in conversation, but soon realized such a format would not work well. Instead, I hope you will read along. As I said, I'll let you know what text we'll be reading and exploring, and when relevant, I'll let you know which particular chapters or pages. And though we won't be able to interact live, I hope to foster, nonetheless, a sense of community. I hope you enjoyed today's first podcast, and now enough of the introductions. Let us begin with the first podcast. 
I don't remember now when or where I was when I first encountered Mark Fisher's Ghosts of My Life, Writings on Depression, Hauntology, and Lost Futures. It feels as if I've known his work all along, and yet that, of course, is not true. What I can say is that once I discovered Fisher's work, I immediately devoured it. After reading Capitalist Realism, I read Ghosts of My Life and then The Weird and the Eerie. As soon as I read Fisher's work, I began to think differently. Where before I'd felt alone, and because my thoughts and experiences were so different from those I came in contact with in my day-to-day -day life, I often felt like I was losing my mind. Reading Fisher's work changed that. Ghosts of My Life is a theoretical text, but written in the everyday vernacular. Fisher writes about philosophical and theoretical concepts through pop culture, television shows, films, and most of all through music. This way of grounding theory by connecting complex philosophical and theoretical concepts with the culture, with the everyday as it is experienced, allows access to these ideas to, the to, to those outside academia. By utilizing examples from culture as a means to illustrate his ideas, Fisher makes what would otherwise remain within bourgeois culture accessible to the working class. Fisher's choice to write in this way is a political choice, resisting the echo chamber of both the bourgeois literary universe and the isolated enclaves of academia. Ghosts of My Life was published in 2014. When I searched the internet, I came across a number of talks Fisher gave around the same time the book came out. In these talks, Fisher discusses the shift that occurred post-Thatcher to neoliberalism in funding for social programs and the subsequent cuts, as well as the cuts to funding for higher education. What strikes me above all in these talks is his focus on the problem, austerity measures and their effect on the working class and poor, his insistence on articulating the problems and locating the results of such problems, where we are now as a result. In other words, his labor was spent locating the fissures in culture, articulating them, then tracing the, their origins. The job of the philosopher is just this, to, point, to put words to what is occurring in society, to point out the problems of fissures and ruptures. In some motifs in Baudelaire, Walter Benjamin critiques philosophers for their inability to diagnose what he calls a change in the structure of experience. In that essay, he writes, Thus one turns to philosophy for an answer, which brings, up against, brings us up against a strange situation. Since the end of the last century, philosophy has made a series of attempts to lay hold of the true experience as opposed to the kind that manifests, manifests itself in the standardized, denaturized life of the civilized masses. It is customary to classify the, these efforts under the heading of a philosophy of life. Their point of departure, understandably enough, was not man's life in society. What they invoked was poetry, preferably nature, and most recently, the age of myths. Dilthi's book, Das Erlebnis und die Dichtung, represents one of the earliest of these efforts, which end with Klages and Jung. Both made common cause with fascism. The question or problem Benjamin is interested in here is the question of how or why there was a, quote, change in the structure of experience, end quote. We turn to the philosopher as he as Benjamin writes, but as Benjamin explains, the philosopher turns away from the common man, society in other words, and then turns instead to the, to the stars, poets, mythology, 
If the philosopher cannot or will not look to concrete reality, the lives of the everyday citizens, the working class, for what has gone wrong, to locate the shifts in society, in the ways that man has changed, how how their ways of experiencing have changed, how, as Benjamin writes, the structure of our experience has changed, what use is the philosopher? In the same essay, Benjamin moves on to Bergson, whose work, Matter and Memory, addressed such issues as experience and memory, and yet Bergson, too, turns away from the lived experience of the everyday man. This, Benjamin writes, is true, despite the fact that Bergson's own work was directly informed by capitalism, as Benjamin writes, and here's a quote. The title suggests that it regards the structure of memory as decisive for the philosophical pattern of experience. Experience is indeed a matter of tradition in collective existence as well as private life. It is less the product of facts firmly anchored in memory than, a, than of a convergence and memory of accumulated and frequently unconscious data. It is, however, not at all Bergson's intention to attach any specific historical label to memory. On the contrary, he rejects any historical determination of memory. He thus manages, above all, to stay clear of that experience from which his own philosophy evolved, or rather, in reaction to which it arose. It was the inhospitable, blinding age of big-scale industrialism. In shutting out this experience, the eye perceives an experience of a com complementary nature in the form of a spontaneous after-image, as it were. And this is the problem, or rather, one of the problems. Mark Fisher was a philosopher trained in the, uh, in the prestigious Warwick philosophy program. He earned a PhD there, writing his dissertation, Flatline Constructs, Gothic Materialism and Cybernetic Theory Fiction, a project exploring cyberpunk fiction, Deleuze and, and Deleuze. But as he said numerous times, he had a complicated relationship with academia. Not surprising, as academia, generally speaking, has become just one more facet of neoliberalism, capitalism, eschewing complexity and preferring instead the sleek, slick, packaged information not dissimilar to what we encounter in mass culture. There is a contradiction then, or perhaps I should say an impasse. If the philosopher is who is capable of locating the problems in society, but is unwilling to venture outside their elite bubble, how can the philosopher's work have any meaning? Furthermore, if a philosopher working in academia does attempt to write about the actual conditions on the ground, life as it is lived by the majority, such work is often considered too extreme for publication and or such philosophers are not able to find full-time employment in the academy. If they are, their work is more often than not diluted, made palatable. For academic readers. In his essay, The Master and the Professor Are Dead and I'm Not Feeling Well Myself, the Slovene philosopher Mladen Dollar writes about Hegel and knowledge, a form of knowledge that ought to be passed down from the practitioner of knowledge to a student. Describing the first university, Humboldt Universität in Berlin, Dollar cites the Hegel scholar Terry Pinkard. This is a quote. <clears throat> The university thus had to be organized around the notion that Wissenschaft, the totality of the learned disciplines, was an end in itself. 
that academic freedom was therefore of utmost importance, and that the purpose of the university was to have students taught by professors who were to impart the state of the art in current research in which they themselves were engaged. The process would lead to students emerging from the university with the formation necessary to continue to progress through such building in the rest of their lives. Moreover, in Humboldt's vision, the university was most emphatically not to be a training ground for the professions. That's the end of that quote. As Dollar explains, quote, the first key feature of that Humboldt model was that the knowledge was an end in itself. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge, relying only on its own authority, and therefore the transfer of knowledge was to be intimately linked with research, for example, the production of new knowledge, for knowledge was seen as subject to constant transformation, development, expansion, progress, conquering every new territories of the hitherto unknown. The grandeur of a professor was not based on his authority alone, but rather on the humility with which he subjected his own authority to knowledge itself as its servant. And Hegel, of course, taught at, the, at that university. Discussing Lacan's seminar, The Other Side of Psychoanalysis, Dollar describes Lacan's working through knowledge, in this case, university knowledge. Primary here is Hegel's concept of the master-slave dialectic, and by extension the idea that it is the slave who holds knowledge. In the following ex ex excerpt, Dollar cites Lacan, and here's a quote. What does philosophy show in all its evolution? It's this. The theft, the robbery, the subtraction of knowledge from slavery by the operation of the master. The function of the epistemy, as specified as transmittable knowledge, is always entirely borrowed from the techniques of hand, handicraft. That is to say, pertaining to the slave. What is at stake is to extract this, their essence so that this knowledge can become the knowledge of the master. It's the end of that quote. Returning now to Mark Fisher, it seems to me this topic, or perhaps rather these topics of knowledge and the question or problem of who has it, who is in control of it, and the commodification of it, which is to say making of knowledge itself a, commodi a commodity and thus a product of the market and therefore inaccessible to the working class and poor, were at the core of Fisher's work, though not always explicitly so. By writing and publishing to a non-academic audience and by utilizing examples from culture, Fisher was able to bring theory and philosophy and cultural criticism to the non-academic reader. And by writing without utilizing academic jargon, eschewing esoteric references, for instance, his ideas moved beyond the elite environs of the university. I recently came across the term working class intellectual while researching Marky Smith of the fall. I found it both surprising and menacing to see the two terms in combination. In other words, Smith wasn't being called an intellectual, but rather a working class intellectual. In this case, the prefect's working class performs the work of negation, qualifying the term intellectual. He isn't really an intellectual. He's a working class intellectual, akin to the term outsider artist or autodidact. Of course, I don't care that middle-class journalists or gatekeepers use such terms. What is of more importance to me is that the working class have access to knowledge and that we have working-class writers, professors, thinkers who can bring 
language to the working class so the working class have the ability to articulate what is happening in our own lives. Though, of course, as I pointed out a few moments ago, it is the slave, or in this case, the worker and the poor, who have knowledge already. We've just been duped into thinking that we don't have it. I was duped into thinking I didn't have it. In a podcast I recorded for the recent K-Punk celebration here at Repeater Radio last month, I spent that podcast explaining how Mark Fisher's work was formative, one of the most important texts that formed me. But what happened for me when I came across his work is that my lived experiences upon reading Fisher's work finally made sense. In other words, I had within me knowledge already experienced, but I didn't yet have the language or concepts to make sense of it. In other words, it isn't as if um, reading some of the texts that I'll be discussing in in these podcasts or even Mark Fisher's work told me everything. Rather, I had my own lived experience and my own knowledge, but it had been negated. I had been told that everything I knew wasn't true. I doubted myself and I um, had been completely absorbed in the culture, in my society, without knowing that the society I live in is not working class, it's middle class. And then I came across Mark Fisher's work, and I was able to access the knowledge I already had, my own experience, the the work I'd already done, and filter it through um, the concepts and ideas and language that Mark Fisher provided. And this is what I'm talking about. It isn't what I'm talking about isn't, um, it isn't as if the working class, the poor, uh, myself had nothing and I need to have some kind of knowledge poured into me, right? That I need to be changed into something. Rather, um, I already have it within me and I just need to be, um, in, a gr- in a great way, part of it is simply being around other working class uh, writers and thinkers and artists and people and then seeing myself reflected in these works. Um, And then also, again, having the language and the concepts that I can then use as tools to better understand my own knowledge and experience. Um, And so now I'm going to read a a quote from uh, Fisher's piece, The Slow Cancellation of the Future from Ghosts of My Life. This is the quote. The kind of melancholy I'm talking about consists not in giving up on desire, but in refusing to yield. It consists, that is to say, in a refusal to adjust what current conditions call reality, even if the cost of that refusal is that you feel like an outcast in your own time. For most of my life, uh, and I I read about this in the Melancholy of Class and and elsewhere, for most of my life I felt... um, resistance to society. And in high school, the way that that um, manifested was that I listened to music um, and the music I listened to was often um, performing resistance in different forms. Some of it was explicit, like the jam or door division, and some of it was less so. Um, The way that I understood that at the time was that there was a problem with society, that society was the problem or um, Authority figures were the problem, but that was a very vague understanding. Um, and it took me many, many, many years to begin to um, understand that it, it was more precise than that. It wasn't authority figures per se. 
um, and it wasn't um, society, it wasn't entirely society. What it was was the, the system that I was, and that all of us are living in, and it was um, the, the fact that capitalism is everywhere. There's no escape from it. And so um, I practiced myself forms of resistance or forms of withdrawal um, in various attempts to um, find a way out or through um, this all-pervasive capitalism. Um, but I didn't know I was doing it. It was more of a, um, it was more of an organic sense, right? And I talked to my father, who wasn't able to finish grammar school because he was, um, he grew up uh, the family in a family of um, farm workers, so he, he wasn't able to finish school. Um, and we would talk about society and politics, um, God, things like that. And so I, I would sort of sharpen my appraisal but um, or my analysis, but I could never quite um, understand what was happening. And so this is what I'm saying is I, I had the organic um, experience and I had the organic um, or inherent um, understanding. You know, it isn't that I didn't have that, but it was through reading, and in my case, Mark Fisher, but other texts that I'll be discussing in these podcasts, it was through reading these texts, some literary, some uh, theoretical, that I was able, better able to um, understand my own life and um, write my own um, intellectual work that I'd already done. So I think this is really an important aspect of all of this, right? Again, it isn't that I, um, I or the working class or the poor, that we have nothing and then, you know, we're these sort of empty vessels that are then filled in. We already have, right? We already have an excess. Um, and what helps or helps and helped for me is to read, uh, especially other working class theorists and philosophers and writers um, talking about some of these same issues that I had experienced, putting words and language to it, so that then I was able to think about it rather than just feel it, and then begin to work it out, um, in my case, uh, initially through poetry and then eventually through essays. Um, so this was really important. So now back to Mark Fisher. Um, though a philosopher, Fisher's writing is directed not to academia, but rather to the quote-unquote layperson. The reader who may or may not be versed in theory and philosophy, like Slavoj Žižek, much of Fisher's writing, which is to say his theory and concepts, are illuminated with examples from film, television, literature, and music, making it more accessible. But perhaps more important, his work, now I'm talking of Fisher, is rooted in the concrete lived experience of the everyday. And in this way, the structure of everyday experience and in the ways that the structure of our, our everyday experience has changed and why, right, returning back to the initial um, Walter Benjamin that I opened this talk with. Um, so in Fisher's essay, The Slow Cancellation of the Future from Ghost of My Life, Fisher writes about, among other things, the British television series Sapphire and Steel and then the demise of public-funded television. And in that essay, he writes... The conditions for this kind of visionary public broadcasting would disappear during the 1980s as the British media became taken over by what another television autor, Dennis Potty, would call the occupying powers of neoliberalism. The result of that occupation is that it is now hard to believe such a program could ever have been transmitted on primetime television, still less on what was then Britain's sole commercial network, ITV. That's the end of that quote. 
public television broadcast culture, tele, public television broadcast casted culture to the public. For those of us without cultural capital, such programming was often an introduction to music, film, and thinkers. This is less so in the U.S. Though the idea of television is frowned upon by liberals, seen as a symptom of laziness and a lack of education, a symbol for the working class and poor, I grew up with the glow of the TV set in the living room, and when I visit my parents, it's still in the background, like a radio. Though it is usually on mute, the TV set is usually on, set on the news channel so that there are two worlds occurring at one time. It isn't usual for my parents to sit and watch the TV set, but rather to listen to the news as it unfolds from the set, akin to a transistor radio. In this sense, there is no remove. Our lives are inextricably connected to the ongoing stream of catastrophes occurring over the world. And when I call my mother, I call her every second day now. Um, the majority of the conversation is about the news and what is happening and why. And she'll ask me my opinions about different world events or leaders. And this is part of the, um, the scaffolding of our conversations in our lives. And in this way, as I've just said, there, um, there is no remove from what is happening in the world and what is happening within the, the walls of our homes. And I think this is really important, the way that the two are connected. But again, as I said, what Fisher is describing is an entirely different phenomenon. In interviews and in his own writing, Fisher referred often to instances of encountering music, especially, but also film through public funded forms of mass media, most often through the television. And in his essay on the jam going overground, the jam between populism and popular modernism, Fisher describes hearing the jam for the first time in a barber shop, something I quite simply find unfathomable as the jam was never popular in the United States and remains a kind of uh, strange satellite that's never spoken of here. This infusion of culture into the homes of the working class and poor was integral to the formation of working class musicians, artists, and writers, as Fisher explains in a talk he gave titled The Slow Cancellation of the Future at Mama Zagreb in 2014. The result of the, the withdrawal of public funding is a society divided, as Fisher says. We can see the results of this 40 years later with the current rift in culture between the liberal elites and the working class. The importance of working class artists, writers, musicians, and thinkers cannot be overstated. Mark Fisher's work is important due to its concepts which can help us better comprehend the world we live in. But when, what undergirds all his work is the radicality of how he relays his concepts and ideas, which brings me back to Benjamin's criticisms of philosophers for turning away from the reality of the everyday lived life. And then this all returns us to Fisher's Ghosts of My Life, and in particular his essay, The Slow Cancellation of the Future, when he writes. I'm going to read you a long quote here. What's at stake in 21st century ontology is not the disappearance of a particular object. What has vanished is a tendency, a virtual trajectory. One name for this tendency is popular modernism. The cultural ecology that referred to, that I referred to above, the music press and the more challenging parts of public service broadcasting were part of a UK popular modernism as were post-punk, brutalist architecture, penguin paperbacks, and the BBC radiophonic workshop. 
In popular modernism, the elitist project of modernism was retrospectively vindicated. At the same time, popular culture definitively established that it did not have to be populist. Particular modernist techniques were not only disseminated, but collectively reworked and extended, just as the modernist task of producing forms which were adequate to the present moment was taken up and renewed. Which is to say that, although of course I didn't realize it at the time, the culture which shaped most of my early expectations was essentially popular modernist, and the writing that has been collected in Ghosts of My Life is about coming to terms with the disappearance of the conditions which allowed it to exist. As Fisher points out, citing Andy Beckett's History of Britain, When the Lights Went Out, Quote, in many ways, we falsely underestimate a period like the 70s, and yet it isn't exactly as if returning to that time period would alleviate all problems, but rather that the 1970s was part of a trajectory we were on, heading towards something new, something that was short-circuited by neoliberalism. Instead of being where we were meant to be, the future we were promised, we are instead stuck inside a window of no time, trapped in a relentless loop of retro pastiche where nothing truly new ever happens, and yet at the same time, thanks to neoliberalism, we aren't even able to be bored anymore. But something else has happened at the same time. It isn't just that we're now trapped in an endless loop of no time. Something else has changed in the structure of our experience. There have been many articles written about the nihilism of the millennials, which has been ascribed to their lack of earning potential. And though this is obviously an important piece, the sense of purposelessness, or rather that there is no meaning to life that is common among millennials, seems to me to be more of an existential question or problem rather than a symptom of the economy. When Fisher describes ontology, a result of our lost futures, he sees the horizon of it, in other words, for those of us who grew up in, in or around the 70s, though we never knew life before neoliberalism and the cut that occurred as a result of its appearance, we grew up in the experience of this change. For those born after us, there is no horizon. Those who were born after us grew up in the afterglow of neoliberalism, never knowing there was anything else, or rather, knowing but without the experience of it. How, then, is nihilism, or profound loss of meaning, connected to this? If, in other words, those of us who grew up in or around the 1970s as society was changing are experiencing ontology, what is the experience of the same phenomena for those born after us? And how is this experience experienced, or rather, in what way is the structure of experience different? We'll talk about more of this, but first let's take a break. I'm going to give you a little bit of time, a couple of minutes, to go grab a couple beers and some snacks, and I'll be right back. Success. 
JRV from a live performance. Returning to what I was talking about before the little break, the tricky break, um, maybe it isn't either or. So maybe it isn't that people born after the 70s, right, the late 70s, I'd say even maybe the early 80s where, you know, again, I did, I, I grew up with neoliberalism, so I didn't grow up with anything before that, right? I didn't grow up before neoliberalism, um, but there was still, right, I, I still was born in sort of that cut, that space between as it was happening. And so I could still see um, remnants or I could experience um, bits and pieces of what was before that, right? And so the question I'm, I'm thinking about now is the people, those of us who were born after that, who, who never had any of that, right? That's a whole different, um, uh, structure of experience. That's something I'm thinking about. And, and before the break, I had said that perhaps um, it isn't merely economic or financial, which is the way the media seems to address this issue of nihilism. Um, and yet perhaps it is, perhaps it is the both, right? That um, that most, most of the people I talk to now, um, their 20s or early 30s, the, the primary, even younger even younger, um, the primary focus seems to be on um, making money. That is the only goal. But along with that is this um, loss of um, hope in anything else. And it's a kind of um, giving in, I think. And, and this is what I'm thinking about. It's something I'll have to think more about. That um, within this um, allegiance to uh, money making being the main goal, there is a, an acknowledgement that, that something has been lost. And so there's a kind of grief in that that makes any sense. So it isn't necessarily um, 100%, you know, I want to go make a lot of money and become this um, neoliberal capitalist, but rather that there is no other choice and therefore this is what I'm going to do. And so something um, for another podcast, perhaps. Going back to um, Mark Fisher, he ends the chapter describing his own struggles with depression and how the writing of Ghosts of My Life were integral to the working through of the condition. And this is what he writes, and this is a quote. Um, depression is the most malign specter that has dogged my life. And I use the term depression to distinguish the 
dreamy solipsism of the condition from the mere, the more lyrical and collective desolation of ontological melancholia. I started blogging in 2003 while still in such a state of depression that I found everyday life scarcely bearable. Some of these writings were part of the working through of the condition, and it's no accident that my so far successful escape from depression coincided with a certain externalization of negativity. The problem wasn't just me, but the culture around me. So that's his quote. Fisher's miraculous chapter on Choi Division, or on Ian Curtis more precisely, in Depression, appears. This chapter is one of my favorites from the book. My other two favorite chapters are The Slow Cancellation of the Future, the chapter I just discussed, and Always Yearning for the Time that Just Eluded Us, Fisher's Introduction to Laura Oldfield Ford's Savage Messiah, which I discuss at length in my podcast of the same name, which aired during Repeater Radio's K-Punk Mark Fisher Marathon. In this chapter on Joy Division, Ian Curtis, titled No Longer the Pleasures, Joy Division, Fisher locates Joy Division's multiple brilliances, beginning with their simultaneous timelessness and prescience. He writes, If Joy Division matter now more than ever, it's because they capture the depressed spirit of our times. Listen to JD now, and you have the inescapable impression that the group were catatonically channeling our present, their future. From the start, their work was overshadowed by a deep foreboding, a sense of a future foreclosed, all certainties dissolved, only growing gloom ahead. It has become increasingly clear that 1979 to 80, the years with which the group will always be identified, was a threshold moment, the time when a whole world, social, democratic, Fordist, industrial, became obsolete, and the contours of a new world, neoliberal, consumerist, informatic, began to show themselves. This is, of course, a retrospective judgment. Breaks are rarely experienced as such at the time. But the 70s exert a particular fascination now that we are locked into the new world, a world that Deleuze, using a word that now that would become associated with Joy Division, called the, quote, society of control. The 70s is the time before the switch, a time at once kinder and harsher than now. That is the end of that quote. The move from Fisher's account of working through his depression at the end of the first chapter to the start of this chapter, 21 pages later, which begins with Fisher's description of Joy Division and their timelessness on account, among other things, of their ability to capture the depressed spirit of our times, is a kind of ellipsis in between the two chapters. The second chapter, Ghosts of My Life, Goldie, Japan, Tricky, serves as a kind of daydream, an escape hatch into a never-ending lucid night, fluid night, Sorry, it isn't that the chapter is cheerful or happy as an escape. Um, the chapter also describes depression in particular, its section on David Sullivan from Japan. And yet the chapters focus on Tricky and Goldie and their rich jungle and trip-hop music provide a respite. Even Sullivan's Japan, the more ambient and melancholic, opens a curtain to another world. Then we enter depression again, or perhaps we never left depression to begin with. Rather, it changed form. The, the space between the first and the third chapters is a brief respite from depression akin to the way the music described in this middle chapter creates a temporary escape, which in turn is akin to the escapes being made by the musicians described. 
Specifically, Fisher describes David Sullivan's escape from his working class childhood. And Fisher writes this. There was a conscious drive away from everything that childhood represented. Sylvian has remarked, Pop was a portal out of the prosaic. Music was only part of it. Art Pop was a finishing school for working class autodidacts, earlier pioneers, sorry, autodidacts, where by following up the clues left behind by earlier pioneers, the illusions secreted in lyrics, in track titles or in interview references, you could learn about things that weren't on the formal curriculum for working class youth. Fine art, European cinema, avant-garde literature. Changing your name was the first step, and Sylvian had traded his given name for one that referred to Sylvian Sylvian from the New York Dolls, the group where, whose style Japan had begun by imitating. The chapter begins with Fisher's writing about Goldie and his discovery of jungle music and ends with Tricky. The chapter's ending describes Tricky's song, Council Estate, from his album, Noel White, Noel West, sorry. The final paragraph of the chapter, Fisher writes, Council Estate conceived of resentment as a motivating force and success as revenge. It wasn't about leaving your past behind as Sylvian wanted to do. It is about succeeding so that your class origins can be forced down the throats of those who said you couldn't succeed. Like so many working class pop stars before him, including Sylvian, success provided vindica vindication for Tricky and gave him access to a world which had attracted and appalled him which both attracted and appalled him. 1996 Tricky Kid was his take on the theme of class dislocation that has preoccupied British pop since at least as far back as the Kinks. It was the best song about a working class male projected out of their milieu into the pleasure garden of the hyper-successful since the Associates Club County. That's the end of the quote. And as soon as we exit the Chapter 2, Tricky Goldie Japan, we enter depression proper. Chapter 1, after all, was the book's introduction, and its subject matter was hauntology and time, not depression per se. No longer the pleasures, joy division, is the descent. The depression Fisher describes here is twofold. First, the depression of the Thatcher neoliberalism, the, the depression that Thatcher and neoliberalism ushered in, and two, the resulting crash, as Fisher writes. This is a quote. Mrs. Thatcher just arrived, the long gray winter of Reaganomics on the way, the Cold War still feeding our conscious with a lifetime's worth of retina-melting nightmares. End quote. And on the previous page, Fisher writes, quote, Try to imagine England in 1979 now. Pre-VCR, pre-PC, pre-C4, telephones far from ubiquitous. We didn't have one till around 1980, I think. The post-war consensus disintegrating on black and white TV. More than anyone else, Joy Division turned this dourness into a uniform that self-consciously signified absolute authenticity. The deliberately functional formality of their clothes seceding from punks, trip, tribalized, anti-glamour, depressive strip dressing for the depression, Deb Deborah Curtis, that was her quote. It wasn't for nothing that they were called Warsaw when they started out, but it was in this eastern block of the mind, in this flow of despond, that you could find 
working class kids who wrote songs steeped in Dostoevsky, Conrad, Kafka, Burroughs, Ballard. That was a quote from Fisher. Fisher's writing on depression and ghosts of my life and elsewhere were incredibly important for me. It was Fisher's writing on mental illness that introduced me to the idea that mental illness, mental illnesses are not a personal issue per se, but instead a symptom of capitalist culture. This concept helped me better understand my own depression and my lifelong struggles with eating disorders. Of course I was sad. Of course I felt hopeless. Of course I didn't want to participate. And why would I? Everywhere I looked, I saw suffering and sorrow. I saw lives wasted for absolutely no reason. I lost years to my eating disorder, spent hours and thousands of dollars I didn't have for various types of treatment for it, CBT, talk therapy, group therapy, inpatient self-help books, you name it, I tried it. The idea was and is that there was something broken with me and I needed to fix it. I needed to find someone to pay to help me fix it. It wasn't until I began to see the connection between my not wanting connection between my not wanting to participate in culture and my resistance toward society and culture that things began to shift. I'm not entirely better, but my eating disorder no longer takes center stage. It is interesting to me that the current epidemic of eating disorders appeared in the US in the late nineteen seventies, along with the arrival of neoliberalism. In my mind, I consider contemporary anorexia or bulimia a neoliberal symptom and or a symptom of neoliberalism. Like other similar iterations of the drive, death drive, both, form, both forms of eating disorders both resent neoliberal society while simultaneously taking on qualities of its manifestation. In Fisher's chapter... An essay that originated on his blog, K-Punk, he describes Joy Division's enactments of depression, a depression both personal and social. And this is his quote. Melancholy was Curtis's art form, just as psychosis was Mark, Mark E. Smith. Nothing could have been more fitting than that unknown pleasures began with a track called Disorder, for the key to Joy Division was the Ballardian spinal lands, spir, spir, landscape the connexus linking individual psychopathology with social anomie, the two meanings of breakdown, the two meanings of depression. That was how Summer, a member of the band, saw it anyway, as he explained to John Savage. There was a huge sense of community where we lived. I remember the summer holidays when I was a kid. We would stay up late and play in the street, and 12 o'clock at night there would be old ladies talking to each other. I guess what happened in the 60s was that the council decided that it wasn't very healthy and something had to go, and unfortunately, it was my neighborhood that went. We were moved over the river to a tower block. At the time, I thought it was fantastic. Now, of course, I realize it was an absolute disaster. I had had a number of other breaks in my life. So when people say about the darkness and joy divisions music, by age of 22, I'd had quite a lot of loss in my life. The place where I used to live, where I had my happiest memories, all of that had gone. All that was left was a chemical factory. I realized then that I could never go back to that happiness, so there's this void. And that that's, um, from, that's from the chapter um, on Joy Division by Mark Fisher that originated on K-Punk. Joy Division was a symptom of the time, though as Fisher writes, and, and I concur, they are also a symptom of the times, performing the loss, melancholia of, 
of neoliberalism. But whereas joy division are a gesture and enactment of the affect of the time or times, the music acts we have now are enactments of neoliberalism, choreographed music acts with pre-tested sound and aesthetics manufactured for success. What we need are more artists, thinkers, and writers writing out of the affect of our times rather than enacting the ideology of our times and neoliberalism. I'm thinking here of working class photographers who concentrate on their communities, resulting in work chronicling the lives of the working class and poor, the quotidian everyday lives of the majority. This is one of the reasons I'm such a fan of Craig Atkinson's project Cafe Royal Books, an imprint of post-war documentary photography connected to the Britain connected to Britain and Ireland, or Kieran Og Arnold's photography. One of the most accurate descriptions of depression appear in this essay. About halfway through after describing Joy Division's depression, Fisher begins writing about depression proper. He writes, quote, Depression is, after all and above all, a theory about the world, about life. And a few paragraphs later, he writes, The depressive experience experiences himself as walled off from the life world, so that his own frozen inner life or inner death overwhelms everything. At the same time, he experiences himself as a evacuated, totally denuded a shell. There is nothing except the inside, but the inside is empty. For the depressive, the habits of the former life world now seem to be precisely a mode of play-acting, a series of pantomime gestures, a circus complete with all fools, which they are both no longer capable of performing and which they no longer wish to perform. There's no point. Everything is a sham. In order to write about the society we live in as we are living in it, we must have some sort of barrier between ourselves and the society we are living in. Assimilation makes this impossible, and yet, of course, in order to survive, we must assimilate to some extent to earn a living, for example. Reading work that reflects the world we are living in, by which I mean works that critically examines the society we live in, is just one means to help us create this space between. One such book is, of course, Mark Fisher's Ghosts of My Life. I hope you've enjoyed our first podcast and that our discussions have made you more interested in some of the topics we've examined. Due to time constraints, we were only able to discuss, though briefly, three chapters from the book. In their Peter K. Punk, in their Peter K. Punk marathon, in my podcast, Always Yearning for the Time That Just Eluded Us, I discussed that chapter from the book, but I encourage you to read the rest of the book one of the most texts for my own one of the most important texts for my own understanding of social class next time we'll be discussing discussing fisher's k-punk a monstrous collection of essays interviews reviews and articles keep an eye out on repeater radio on instagram and twitter as we'll be posting the readings on that um on that website and their postings um i'll let you know precisely what essays we'll be reading from K-Punk, so you can read along. Thank you again for listening to The Melancholy of Class. Have a wonderful 14 days. Enjoy your reading of K-Punk, and I'll see you again very soon. I'm going to be closing our podcast with a song by Sparkle Horse. I hope you enjoy it.
Thank you.